0: This is History West Midlands.
1: How could couples and families maintain their relationships for the four years of the First World War? The answer is to be found in the two billion letters delivered by the British Army Postal Service. Here, the servicemen and their mothers, wives and sweethearts revealed how they adjusted to new roles and responsibilities and prepared for life after the war. In this programme, historian Haley Carter of the University of Worcester ...explores correspondence between two very different couples... ...seeking continuing reassurance from one another. For many married couples, the First World War
2: brought with it... ...a significant amount of change and readjustment to their everyday lives. It was the first time many couples had faced long periods of separation. Yet many men attempted to maintain their roles as master of the house... Caring partner and father, albeit from a distance. Women also continued their caring roles despite the physical separation. They found themselves, with guidance from their partners, being responsible for traditionally male roles within the household, such as managing the finances, something often discussed within their letters. Those in long-term relationships had the advantage of already having established patterns of interaction and caring, These couples benefited from having built a life together, raising their children and within their letters continuing to offer each other advice while sharing concerns. Working here at the University of Worcester, I have been looking at how couples maintain relationships during war. My research indicates the typical characteristic of correspondence is an attempt to maintain their everyday conversations and responsibilities despite the many miles between them. Both husbands and wives tried to continue and carry out their pre-war roles by the sending and receiving of letters and parcels. Although the written word provided a fragile connection that lacked the warmth of human intimacy, it provided a significant emotional link over the miles of separation. The sender and recipient were able to hold the same physical item only hours or days apart. Letters from home were often accompanied by items and tokens of affection, these could be anything from food parcels, photographs, keepsakes, or a lovingly repaired pair of socks. What was written between the couples was not meant for a mass audience. The correspondence was personal and emotive only to those involved. This programme features two married couples separated by war for very different reasons. John Wheeler and his wife Elizabeth, affectionately known as Bessie, were married in 1912 And by the time of John's enlistment in early 1915, they had a young daughter and a son on the way. The couple's correspondence was based on mutual affection. Yet John writes in October 1915.
3: I cannot help feeling that my letters must be very dry. I put in such a lot of detail. There is a London Scottish on the end of this table, and I should think he's writing a story. I can see number 16 on the sheet he is writing now, and he writes so quickly and well. John's
2: letters do sometimes appear short, formal and regimented, but are also filled with the mundane, everyday conversations the couple would previously have shared by the fire or around the kitchen table. For example, he writes in May 1915,
3: I hope Babs is better. I shall be glad to know. I love to get your letters, even if there is no news in them, as you say.
2: Though news was limited, that Bessie had taken the time to write was of great significance. The letters became their own personal space in which they grumbled, discussed family matters and reassured one
3: another. I am afraid I shall not write as often now I am in camp, but shall as often ever I can, you may be sure. I'm always thinking of you, and I'm quite all right. It's a most beautiful evening, and I wish I was at home with you. I do hope you will keep well. Do rest as much as you can, but do go out too. Taken any photos lately?
2: John's letters were both caring and attentive. On the afternoon of June 15th, he suddenly felt very strange and told his friend that there was something wrong at home. When he returned to camp, he asked if there was any news, but there was nothing. That evening, John was both restless and unhappy and could simply not believe that there was no news. By midday the next day, his father had written to him to inform him that his son, John Richard Wheeler, had been born a month early. John was subsequently allowed six days' leave. Upon his return to camp, he wrote to Bessie.
3: This is the seventh day and I hope you're getting on well. And don't you worry about the baby's weight. It will be sure to improve in the next week or so. I forgot to tell you that I took a blank cheque without putting anything on the counterfoil. Just put JFW Life Insurance on it and then we can't forget.
2: This sensible and down-to-earth man always wanted to ensure that both his wife and children were being cared for. However, he wanted to maintain his position as head of the household. In April 1915, he writes,
3: I am wondering, however, how you are managing for money this quarter. Glad to think you only have five more weeks to go. Leave coal and all the other bills until after the 19th. Don't you want something new for the wedding? Whatever shall you wear if you don't get something new? And a hat. Only John's letters have survived, but Bessie's
2: caring nature towards her husband can easily be seen. She regularly sends packages filled with cakes and necessities accompanied by a long letter. She also darned his socks, mended shirts and even sent thank you gifts to the couple who owned the home where John was billeted. He wrote passing on their thanks.
3: Mr and Mrs Scrivener wish to send a message of thanks and say how pleased they are to receive the rabbits, greens, rhubarb etc. Mrs Scrivener wishes she could see you to thank you for all you sent. She says the rabbits are the best she ever had.
2: In John's absence, Bessie took on his dangerous and heavy household tasks. Following a letter from his brother Ted, John writes to express his concern.
3: I had such a very nice letter from Ted this morning, and you are to be sure and tell him if you want anything done. He has been so nice, and I'm sure he would help you in any way. He would sharpen the carving knife for you every day if you got into the habit of putting it out for him when he came in. In early May 1916, he again writes... You seem to have been very busy with your spring cleaning. Don't you get trying to do too much or too heavy lifting with this spring cleaning? And do be careful how you get those long curtains down from the dining room. Get the errand boy to help.
2: Money was a constant feature of their correspondence, with John regularly giving instructions about payments and household bills. John's low military pay left him worrying about how Bessie coped. In the winter of 1915, he instructed...
3: Do put the money your aunts gave you into the bank for the boy. Don't spend it on a jersey. I'm supposed to keep you and I want to and so get the jersey and have it entered in account.
2: However, financial concerns did not stop him asking Bessie to send him small sums of money in order to buy the items he required, such as a shaving mirror. Bessie never failed to respond to John's requests whilst juggling her household budgets and keeping food on the table. The experience of John and Bessie was very different from that of the second couple I would like to introduce to you. Gilbert and Violet Slater from Oxford had married in 1897. Their story demonstrates that relationships could be turned upside down by war, even if they were not directly involved in the conflict. Gilbert and Violet were both from an educated background, and their marriage was one of equals. Although Gilbert was not directly involved with the war, the conflict turned their lives upside down and separated them for the duration. Gilbert was principal of Ruskin College in Oxford, which was set up to educate working men. But in 1915, the college became the headquarters for the Belgian Relief Committee and later part of the Third Southern General Hospital. He had little choice but to resign his position. Unable to find employment in Britain, Gilbert accepted a five-year appointment at the University of Madras, as the first professor of Indian economics, leaving Violet and their three sons in England. Their letters are those of a united couple and provided a space for open discussion. They often voiced opinions, gave advice and shared concerns and worries over their children, particularly when their eldest, Owen, joined the officer's training corps at his school. On many occasions, Gilbert and Violet openly discussed the possible pathways available to their son in order to keep him out of the war. Their family was always at the heart of their correspondence. Gilbert wrote to Violet soon after his arrival in India.
0: I don't think you must feel that I am shirking responsibilities by coming out here. So far as I could see, there was nothing I could do in England to help bring the war to an end. And here, if I do my work well, I shall certainly be helping to prevent future wars. And for carrying my family through the period of war, difficulty and poverty, and depression of trade afterwards, Could I be very sure of success at home? I feel I should have deserved to lose your love if I had not come, and the feeling that I had failed to do what I was quite clear was my duty would have poisoned our relations. I should have been a morally broken man. But do not think that I do not feel the separation and not seeing him being with you and the boys and the long time it takes for letters to come and go and, most of all, the loss of the Persia and all that it implies.
2: S.S. Persia was a passenger liner sunk by a German U-boat without warning on December 30th, 1915. Many lives were lost, along with all of the boat's contents, which included many post bags full of letters. As well as being a space in which to share personal feelings, Gilbert's letters often attempted to calm Violet from a distance. She could quite often become both overly passionate and driven with ideas. Gilbert writes in March 1916...
0: Try to relax your mind and snatch pleasures as they pass. It is too exhausting to be always at high tension. I can only try to help you and take care of you by advice. And I'm afraid advice may seem like unwelcome sermonising. Don't take it so. Take it as the nearest thing I can do to folding you in my arms and trying to comfort you to sleep.
2: This gives a wonderful example of how Gilbert tried to keep up his caring role as husband but with an average delay of six weeks to two months before post arrived, his advice and care would often be received long after the moment had passed. The majority of Violet's correspondence reflects her growing anti-war beliefs. She goes to great lengths to explain her political opinions and allows little space within her letters to describe her everyday experiences.
1: In April 1918, she wrote, This time last year you were here and brought me this pen that I am using. As a wedding present. I wonder if you will remember the day, 21 years ago. It seems a very long time ago. I never expected to be parted, thousands of miles apart, and the horror of a terrible war going on. I did not think it would be possible for such sad times to continue. All the wrong people are being killed, and millions grown. Violet
2: and Gilbert's correspondence continued throughout the war, discussing family, friends, domestic life, and their changing perceptions of war. They were finally reunited some time after the conflict ended. The two couples come from different classes, and their letters have different priorities. Bess's everyday life is looking after the children and home. Violet has domestic help, and so has more freedom to pursue her passion for politics. Furthermore, once Gilbert had arrived in India, he was relatively safe. John, however, was not. He was killed in action on September 28, 1918, just six weeks before the armistice was signed and the fighting ceased. Unable to escape the fear of possible death, Bessie and John were robbed of their happy ever after. Both couples had sought to maintain their marriages through letters and had done so successfully. These collections leave us with a fascinating and at times poignant insight into the challenges, complexities and heartfelt feelings that were involved in sustaining wartime marriages.
1: You can find more podcasts and films exploring the hidden home front in Worcestershire and surrounding counties and register for our newsletter at www.historywm.com.